0: ABC Listen podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining exploration.
1: And talk a little bit about indigenous uh, constitutional recognition. Those
2: With Larissa Barrett, it's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. You can imagine, after all I've been boasting about my, you know, journalistic record in covering race in this country, I suddenly discover that something i have never bothered... I'd never bothered to query. I'd suddenly discovered that my family had a really dreadful role on the frontier. I'd, I'd always taken for granted that somehow... And this is very Australian, I think. Somehow I was clean, you know.
0: Killing for Country, a family story and celebrating the life of Dr Lowitcher O'Donoghue, a pioneering leader in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander advancement and recognition.
1: I never aspired to leadership. Uh, Leadership came finally as a a result of having been involved at the grassroots level, coming through the, the regional level to the state level to the national level and so on, and I think that that
0: really is the only way to do it. This is Speaking Out, I'm Larissa Berendt. It's unusual for us to have white whitefellas on Speaking Out and we only do so when they're true allies. David Mara is a prolific journalist and writer with more than 50 years experience, including a stint hosting Media Watch on the ABC in the early 2000s. He's a public intellectual who's reflected deeply on the kind of country we are and the stories we should tell about it. David has recently published an important book called Killing for Country, and we'll chat about that soon, but he's made other contributions to Australia's conversation around race and how we treat each other. David wrote a book with fellow journalist Marion Wilkinson about the Tampa Asylum Seeker fiasco that they both reported on for the Sydney Morning Herald. He retired from the Herald more than a decade ago, but he didn't really retire. He's still a journalist and commentator for Guardian Australia, the Saturday Paper, and the Monthly*. And it's so great to have him on the show. Welcome to Speaking Out, David Marr.
2: Thank you very much, Larissa.
0: Now, usually when we have a guest on the show, we start by asking them in true Blackfellow way where they're from, where they grew up and who influenced their worldview. So in the spirit of the show, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what kind of uh, influenced you to have such a strong sense of social justice and history and what led you to be a journalist? What is the David Marr? Early story.
2: I grew up on the North Shore of Sydney um, in the comfortable suburb of Pimble, and the family's ethic essentially was Presbyterian. And while my mother was kind of quite camp and and, uh, adored notions of society and that kind of thing, um, my father uh, was a quiet, good man who taught us about being decent and fair to people. I got from him much more than I ever got from the private school that I went to, and his lessons still are very strongly in my mind. But what made me particularly interested in fairness and the politics of fairness was discovering that I was gay, and I was gay at a time um, in the 1970s when um, sex, theoretically, could send you to jail... Having, having sex was a criminal offence, punishable with quite a, decent, um, quite a decent sentence in jail. And once I'd worked out the problems of my own life and, you know, working out that in fact I was gay and that I had to face this and I had to face it publicly, I became deeply suspicious of public morality, deeply suspicious of the conservative worldview about, you know, hell awaits us around the corner if we should relax. Um, I mean, I watched the relaxation of rules on divorce. I watched the relaxation of all kinds of things. And then finally, much too late, the decriminalisation of homosexuality. And so I was always interested in that. And at the same time, I became, as a young journalist, fascinated by the role of race in Australian politics and in particularly the role of contempt for Aboriginal people um, in the politics of this country. One of the first big stories I ever did was for the bulletin in the aftermath of the 1974 elections. Who of your readers are alive today, listeners are alive today to remember the 1974 elections? When Whitlam lost um, great support, great traditional Labor support, particularly in northern Queensland, because of the initiatives he had taken, particularly in Aboriginal education. And I went up there and recently, recently I had reason to dig this story out and the unabashed, unapologetic, racist blasts from the people of Cairns and the hinterland of Cairns um, talking about their rage at Whitlam that he had arranged for Aboriginal kids to have scholarships to stay in high school. That fascination with this racial undertow has been with me all my career from the start.
0: Was that an awakening for you? Because I'm mindful of the time that you're talking about you would not have learnt any Aboriginal history in school or it would have been a very particular type of Australian history. Was it anything that you had an inkling of or was it a complete revelation that that was the status of race relations in Australia at that time?
2: No, I had had an inkling of it because I listened to the conversation, uh, conversations around me in Sydney and at the university at that time. And I was at Sydney University when the first when the first sort of radical campaigns were beginning um, to address segregation in New South Wales um, and the terrible position of Aboriginal people under government controls of one kind or another. So it didn't surprise me, but at that time, I didn't see it in its historical context. I was much more interested in it as a kind of weird and horrible survival of another time and to find that it was so vigorous and alive um, and uninhibited um, in Queensland and elsewhere, of course, in Australia.
0: The choice of journalism as a career, was that something that you had thought about for a long time? How did you end up going into that field?
2: I'd always wanted to be a writer. As a 14-year-old, I was writing plays... God knows, I hope they've disappeared. But my parents persuaded me in good middle-class fashion that I needed something to, quote, fall back on, close quotes, and that I should study law. And I did study law, and I worked as an article clerk in a huge law firm in Sydney, and I got admitted as a solicitor. But I'd seen enough of that life to realise that I didn't want to be fighting other people's battles, particularly because those battles were commercial and, um, and often very grim. I mean, I remember one afternoon carrying some books for one of the partners of this law firm up to Phillip Street where all the barristers lived and going to the chambers of one of the leading barristers in Sydney and sitting at the back and listening to him and the other lawyers present working out how they could steal a bequest from Sydney University. And I'm sitting there thinking, do I really want this to be my life? And as I say, I was admitted as a solicitor. I practised for a day, Larissa. I put in (laughs) a good day's work. (laughs) And on the Monday I left to do the the traditional trip to Europe. And when I came back, um, it was as a a, a would-be journalist. In those days... The fact that somebody with a law degree wanted to be a journalist was considered absolutely remarkable. There was apparently one other journalist in Australia that had a law degree, so I didn't have any trouble getting a job, and I was off.
0: It's so interesting to me that somebody with a strong sense of social justice, who understands from a very personal point of view, the structural unfairness of laws finds the legal profession is not the way to progress that agenda. I have to say that resonates with me somewhat as somebody who became a lawyer to change the world and now has moved into broadcasting and filmmaking and other forms of storytelling. is it
2: true for you as it is for me that I'm still devoted to the notion of the law and the power of the law and what laws can do to reform society? I'm... I still, you know, even after all this time, and you were kind enough to put the the figure 50 um, on my career. um, I didn't say how old you were, though. um, (laughs) um, Late 70s. um, I still, after all this time, I am arguing publicly for reform of law as a way to, to take Australia forward into a better place.
0: I am absolutely like you in that way. I still am engaged in legal practice. So I run strategic litigation. I still have a very strong belief in the importance of the rule of law. Mm. So, mm. yes, I think we, we both share that. But it's the thing about as a person within that system, it feels like you can't, necessarily make those changes the same way as you can when you hold a mirror to the system to get it to change the way it
2: needs to change. Yes. And the emergence in the last 10 or 15 years of the radical practitioner who makes strategic interventions into big public legal disputes, um, that's new and um, interesting and not always above criticism.
0: I think this background is so interesting to then look more deeply at the sorts of stories that you've really made a big impact on. And, of course, one of the books that stands out, and it was the basis of, um, of a large amount of journalism is, of course, Dark Victory that came out in 2003 and was the basis of investigative work that you did with Marion Wilkinson around John Howard's re-election campaign that leveraged the asylum seeker issue and manipulated the facts, to put it nicely. Um, what was it about this story that um, clearly um, meant so much to you and in terms of having to get that truth out to the Australian public?
2: Well, there was the fundamental cruelty to the to the asylum seekers of the Australian government. There was also the capitulation of the law in the face of, of government pressure. But underneath it all, what Marian Wilkinson, my co-author, and I wanted to show was the way in which John Howard had brought race fear into the centre of national politics for political advantage. There had been a period, an interesting period in Australia when it was considered indecent to do such a thing. And it started, um, of course, with Whitlam, and continued under Fraser for all the, the criminal way in which Fraser came to power. He was very good on race. It helps to have a Jewish grandmother. It really helps to have a Jewish grandmother to understand race. And um, Fraser was terrific. And then the transfer to Labour, to, to Hawke and then to Keating, again, There was they were leading... They, they didn't perhaps show the courage they needed to show in the land rights movement, but, but they were leading in that direction. And Australian politics was moving towards a position where exploiting race hatred was considered indecent. Then Howard came along. Now, Howard was one of the greatest professional politicians any of us will ever see in our lifetime, and he was ruthless in in what he chose to exploit. And what he chose to exploit um, was fear of race and not just the fear of refugees, but also how it was a very, very clever exploiter of fear and contempt for Aboriginal people.
0: Yes, I'm, I have very much cherry-picked your whole body of work by picking out that one book, but it was specifically for that reason, because I I feel like what you um, articulated in that that book about the cleverness of using race baiting and reintroducing that as part of the national conversation, very much set the stage of what was going to happen in the Howard years, particularly in the Indigenous Affairs portfolio.
2: The other thing to remember of that time is that Pauline Hanson was not a product of people who feared refugees. Pauline Hanson was a direct product of antagonism towards government policies helping Aboriginal people in Queensland. She she rode, and with her nasty little party, she rode into parliament on exactly the sentiments that I had seen in North Queensland after the 1974 elections. This sort of contempt for the notion that Aboriginal people were owed anything.
0: And I think that that's a really important segue into talking about the book that we're going to talk about now, Killing for Country, because I would imagine that you've already spoken now about two different points of time where you've seen particular attitudes and you would have very much revisited those attitudes in this book. Um, so I'm so excited to have the chance to talk to you about this because I feel like this is one of the most important books I've read in a really long time. Um and I don't say that lightly, (laughs) and I read a lot of books too, just to say. (laughs) Thanks.
2: It's (laughs) Um, reassuring.
0: And of course, for people who aren't familiar with with Killing for Country, it's framed around four figures in your own family tree. We've got Richard Jones, his brother-in-law, Edwin B. Ewer, and Edmund's sons, Reg and Darcy. They embody what would have been romanticised as ambition, entitlement, conquest of colonisation. And their stories reveal what the price of nation building was. Um, It was a pretty bold and brave step to take to write a book that talked about figures in your family tree that turned out in many ways to be less than heroic. I just want to unpack They were that.
2: brutal killers. They
0: were brutal killers. That was the reveal we were <laughs>
2: oh. I think the title gives it away a bit. It
0: does, it does. Um and, and I guess there's a so much I want to unpack with you about this book. But I want to start by saying as a First Nations reader, I felt profoundly grateful for a book that delved so honestly into a history that is sitting in our archives and is a true explanation of how this country came to be. And so I wanted to start by asking you, what led you to write this book about these particular ancestors of yours? (laughs)
2: Um, We don't go in for family history much in my family. There are one or two stories, and I think most families are like that, aren't they? They have one or two, three or four stories about their past, and that's enough. Um, And... I do need to make it absolutely clear that this book is nothing to do with the Mars. Larissa, please understand that the Mars are splendid people. They are, without blot, um, descendants of a worthy Highland blacksmith who (laughs) who came to this country in the 1860s. But one of them, my father, married into my mother's family. And my mother's family is a much more interesting and muddled lot and... My mother's last surviving brother, um, they're all gone now except for him, said to me one day, I know nothing about my grandmother. Could you, you're a journalist, could you dig out some stuff about my grandmother? Um, and this was a woman called Maud Ewer who had married his grandfather and it didn't take me long to discover that her father, Reg, had been an officer in the Queensland Native Police. Now, you you can imagine, after all I've been boasting about my, you know, journalistic record in covering race in this country, I suddenly discover that something i have never bothered... I'd never bothered to query. I'd suddenly discovered that my family had a really dreadful role on the frontier. I'd, I'd always taken for granted that somehow... And this is very Australian, I think. Somehow I was clean, you know. I mean, I don't believe I'm dirty because of this, but I am filled with shame... You can be so proud of things your family's done in the past that you've had nothing to do with, you know, invented the steam engine or first to navigate the Torres Strait or something, you can be very, very proud of those things. And you can also be ashamed when you discover that your family were professional killers of Aboriginal people um, in Queensland in the 1860s and 1870s. And I had no choice. I mean, there was nothing else I could do, nothing else a man of my record and my trade could do except write the story. You know, that's the only thing I could do. And it's very kind of people to say, oh, this must have been very painful and um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Look, it was at times, but basically malign chance had served me, had served up to me an important story that had to be written And that's how I set about doing it, with a promise to myself, no excuses.
0: I did want to talk about the tone of the book, because as a reader, I was very impressed by the tone that you had. I felt that you were able to tell the story without any apology, but without any hand-wringing. And for me as a First Nations reader, I felt that was really important. It gave me Almost a greater sense of indication that this wasn't something that, you know, that people felt they had to agonise over. But I felt very strongly at the end, you're very clear that if we understand this history, it gives us an obligation to think about the future. Yes. And I really appreciated that that's the way you framed this story. I think that's a really important thing. As you say, it's not about making people feel bad. We don't want to get into the old Howard type of black armband, white blindfold. It just feels like what I appreciated about the book is it sort of seemed to move completely beyond that and that actually the bigger questions you raise at the end of the book aren't about what do we do about this past, but what does this mean for our future?
2: Exactly. And I wasn't going to – no hand-wringing no emoting, um, no rage. Um, I let the rage fuel the enterprise, but it's not there in the prose. I wanted clear, clear um, exposition, clear storytelling and lay it all out so that people could understand what happened. And and that was the aim because it came to me, it came, it, it... In the course of the five years it took, for me, with the assistance of my partner, a fantastic, um, also ex-lawyer and researcher, Sebastian Tesserero, the point of the book became simpler and simpler and simpler. And in the end, it boils down to this. We have to understand this is a conquered country. And when you understand that, so much shifts and in particular we have to face the decent obligation to those we conquered and the conquest of australia was uniquely brutal and total and devastating even in the history of the british empire it was no prisoners it was no land set aside it was no profits shared it was and it was killing and kidnapping where no authorities intervened to protect the Indigenous owners of the land. Nothing. Except on one or two remarkable occasions, but essentially nothing for a century. That we're a conquered country, that the terms of conquest were particularly brutal, and alone amongst the former countries of the British Empire, we've never reached an accommodation with those we conquered. And that's what my aim became, just... Let people understand by laying the facts out clearly that this is a conquered country. When I set out, I told the publishers, look, I think it'll take me about 18 months and it's going to be the story of two officers of the native police and the appalling things they did in the bush in Queensland. Um, But then I discovered that when you looked at their father's career and when you look at the man, Richard Jones, who had married into the family in London and brought all these boys out to Australia, it was possible to tell both the economic and political story of how dispossession was shaped and protected and entrenched in the politics of the time. Richard Jones, I can't understand why somebody hasn't written a full-length biography of Richard Jones. Mind you, I think... (laughs) maybe I don't know. they don't need to now cuz i <laughs> right, but right. Richard, what else is there left to say? Richard Jones was a rich uh, was a merchant who became rich in Sydney. He was an evangelical Christian, he had a fleet of whaling boats, um, he was considered extraordinarily honest and as a result he was appointed by the governor as president of the Bank of New South Wales and he was president of the Bank of New South Wales the second president for over a dozen years. He was a mighty mercantile figure. He was also a mighty philanthropist, um, but the philanthropy, of course, only went to whites. And he sat on the Governor's Legislative Council. And that council never did anything to protect the Aboriginal people in all the time that Jones sat there. One of the things that my partner Sebastian loves doing is working out acreages. And he worked out... The Governor's Council, in the time that Jones was on on it, went from possessing, if I could use that word just in a general sense, possessing about 150,000 acres of of, um, Aboriginal territory to possessing a million, a million in their own name, and one of the members of the council had management of another million acres. So the very heart of politics in the colony of New South Wales was a bunch of men who were dispossessing the indigenous people with no compensation whatever. There were always people, and thank God for them, there were always people saying, this is theft. There was a wonderful argument at the time by some of the more pious that all they needed, these black savages, all they needed in return for their land was, the, was an opportunity to enter the light of Christ. But the thing that I really discovered through the, through the life of, of Jones is that all of these merchants and bankers and squatters and dealers, they were all crooks.
0: This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, ABCRN, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories too. On this episode, we've got journalist David Marr talking about his latest book, Killing for Country. When David discovered his ancestors were in the native police, he realised there was only one thing he could do. He had to investigate his forebears' roles in killing Indigenous people
2: and tell the story. The colony of New South Wales, well, let me put it this way, the city of Sydney in the colony of New South Wales was a nest of crime and that the colonies were lawless. It wasn't just what happened beyond beyond the boundaries of the town and the killings and the kidnappings in the bush. The whole enterprise was rotten. And the atmosphere in which people paid no attention whatever to the law um, began in the counting houses before it went out into the bush. It was It was the spirit of the times. So Jones... And of course, I became completely um, intrigued by Jones. His Sydney estate, he named as a way of um, giving, the, giving the finger to Governor Burke, he named after Burke's predecessor, Governor Darling, who was very close to Jones. And he called that estate Darlinghurst. And the suburb of that name began in the four acres of garden around Jones's house. In the end, yes, he went bankrupt, um, but he hid most as, mon- as much of his assets as he possibly could, as any you know evangelical Christian may be tempted to. He hid um, his assets with um, his brothers-in-law, my family, and built himself a cottage um, on the Brisbane River on ninety acres that he called New Farm. And Jones became a very powerful advocate on the Legislative Council and after his time on the Legislative Council for the Native Police, which I know we'll get to.
0: I don't want to let um, Edmund be your off lightly either before we get to... let us not. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about him, because in a similar vein, he didn't get his hands so dirty, but he certainly profited.
2: There are all sorts of crazy age differences here, so that what... So that Edmund Blücher Ewer, named after the the man who defeated Napoleon, Edmund Blücher Ewer was, in formal sense, the brother-in-law of Richard Jones. Jones had married their sister. Jones was 36. The sister was 19. How and why they married is very unclear. Um, She came from um, the slums by the Thames. And Jones then brought all of her pack of brothers out. All the Ewer boys were then brought out. One of these was Edmund Blücher, Ewer, and he stayed with Jones the longest of them all as an overseer on his uh, on his properties. As a, as a magistrate, um, Jones was able to make sure that he was appointed as a magistrate. In those days, a very important part of this story, most of the magistrates were, on the British model, gentlemen magistrates. They weren't professional magistrates. They were squatters. The squatters themselves were responsible for law and order in the bush, um, which was not a good lookout for the Indigenous people. Edmund B. Ewer was um, also a businessman, and in the early times in Queensland, he was a great sucker-upper to um, the conservative politicians of the new colony of Queensland, and that was how he was able to get two of his sons these very coveted positions and only available, by the way, to people with political connections, essentially gentlemen, um, in the native police. And both first Reg and then Darcy joined the force as very, very young men commanding Aboriginal troopers with a mission to kill.
0: There were two things about... Reg and Darcy's exploits, their work with the Native police that struck me most in the book. The first was just how extensive the amount of area they covered. And I really appreciate that in the book, when you have maps of places, you use the names of the nations and clans that were there Mm. and were in many cases terribly eradicated. So the first was just the scope of the exercise. They
2: covered a lot of ground. They
0: covered a lot of ground. And maybe you could talk a bit about that. But also so much of what you put in the book in your true journalistic style comes out of the archives, comes out of letters, comes out of material that's there sitting there, with with very little attempt to cover up what was being done.
2: At some point, we don't really know when, probably in the 1930s, the enormous records of the Queensland Native Police disappeared. They're presumed destroyed. Some fragments of them have survived because they were in other bureaucratic hands at the time that the clean-out was done, and they're very useful for the story. The great engine, search engine of the National Library, Trove, which allows us to go into newspapers to do word searches for newspapers. There's a bit of a problem searching for the <laughs> for the surname Ewer because it's the German word for hour. And <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there were German newspapers in Australia and quite a lot of advertising in German as well. So the opening hours of every business in German hands would come up when you were searching for Ewer. But that um, engine um, was was very valuable. When you take the career of one family and then two brothers, you can dig down very deeply and tell a story in much more detail about the system that they were writing. And we had tremendous help from great archivists who worked for a couple of years um, to get this material together.
0: It's true that when you read the totality of this story and because it's one through the prism of one family and their actions over, you know, the, the, these two generations effectively, you get the sense that this country, as you said, it was taken by conquest with no compensation, no reparation. And of course, no one can always uh, estimate what the environment will be when a book is published because it takes so long to write one and go through the process. I was
2: two years late remembering this, <laughs> Larissa, but two I, years. But
0: I read this in the shadow of the referendum where a lot of the dialogue that was coming up in conversation around that issue mirrored the conversations you mentioned earlier about the resentment about giving anything to Aboriginal people. You mentioned that about Gough Whitlam. You mentioned that in relation to Pauline Hanson's rise. And it felt like there was a whole lot of resentment about the idea that Aboriginal people were getting something for nothing. And your book so powerfully puts on the table that this was a continent that was taken for nothing. And I wondered what you felt about the fact that actually without any um, uh, anticipation of that environment, that that was the conversation that was happening when your book was starting to be read by people.
2: Well, it was a conversation happening as I was finishing the book as well, for really the last couple of years of finishing the book. I had thought that the language of inner-city elites and virtue signalers was invented in some kind of United States Republican think tank in the 1990s, you know, sort of Reaganite, um, you know, a Reaganite um, rhetorical device to put down progressives. And then I found the same language and the same arguments in the colonial newspapers in Sydney in the 1830s. The language was slightly different. City folk ignorant of the ways of the bush, city folk who didn 't know um, he didn 't know how savage blacks were, city folk anxious to show off their humanitarian instincts, all of those arguments um, were there then they were in slightly different language, all being argued again in the referendum campaign. there was also from the really early times, the really early times of dispossession, which began on a huge scale on the continent of Australia um, in the middle of the 1830s. From that time, there was an argument that it was no use giving money to Aborigines because they wouldn't know what to do with it, they would waste it, um, that all money spent on Aboriginal people was money squandered. Those arguments are there, 1830s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And those arguments were there again in 2021, 2022, 2023. The same argument. Look at the money that's been spent on them. What have they got to show for it? It's all been squandered. It was one of the big lessons of the book for me, and I hope it's clear to the readers, that this country has been on a long continuum, a very long continuum of hate, and we're still there.
0: I want to ask you about, what you hoped the impact of the book would be. But I want to preface the question, obviously you can tell by my response to it and I wrote a review of the book. Um, I had a very strong positive response to it and I found it difficult because of the subject matter. I think it's an important book and I felt like I understood the characters, I felt like I understood a little bit more deeply how the institutions of law helped validate the dispossession of um, the country. For me as a lawyer academic, the book is, you know, something that would be the sort of thing that I would usually read. Colleagues like Daniel Browning have also found the book really wonderful. But there's a really great fan of the show, Riverbank Frank, (laughs) who's um, an absolute wonderful salt of the earth person. He loved the book too. And I just wanted to mention that because I think it's important to get a grasp of what it means to First Nations. Readers without you having to say what you hoped they would take from it. But I'm very interested in what you hoped a non Indigenous audience would take from the book.
2: That we're a conquered country and that what happened was far worse than even those of us who thought we were across this subject. When I began this book, I thought I was across this subject. I'm a huge admirer of Henry Reynolds. I've read all of Reynolds' work. A huge admirer of Manning Clark. I fought on the side of Manning Clark during the history wars. Um, I thought I knew it, and i didn 't i didn 't know i would I would like people to understand that to run a government execution squad for over fifty years, as Queensland did, takes real political organization real will It takes a very subtle understanding of how the law works and how the law can be neutralized to allow these killings to continue it 's not just an easy business of sending some bloodthirsty Um, white officers out in the bush with a pack of Aboriginal troopers to kill. It actually takes real organisation, real care, and the system of that I want people to really understand. I would also hope that some more people will now come forward and talk about their family's role in all of this. There were 442, I think, white officers in the Native Police... And they left a lot of families behind. In the course of doing this book, I found no one, really, who was willing to sort of put up their hand and say, I'm also a descendant of an officer of the native police. And I would want more of that to happen. It's also, of course, a very difficult thing. The the white side of this story can claim no bravery, but the Indigenous side of the story is very difficult too. I mean, the killing was done by indigenous troopers on on an imperial model that worked throughout the empire, indeed has worked in empires since before Julius Caesar. You enroll the locals in your colonizing enterprise, and that happened also in Australia. There's a lot more for us to discover, and I hope that people will finish the book saying, let's get more on this, let's find more. Since the book has been published... I have been approached by descendants of other officers and particularly one of the very worst, most bloodthirsty um, officers, a man called Frederick Wheeler, and a number of his descendants have come forward and they're actively engaged in working out more about his life, which I welcome.
0: It struck me as well through this period of the referendum post the Uluru Statement, we talk about voice, uh, treaty truth... And we thinking deeply about truth-telling from the First Nations side. In fact, there are some processes in place in Victoria and one starting in uh, Queensland. And we often think about that as finding the space for First Nations people to tell their stories that haven't been heard. But it struck me, reading the book, I thought this was another very important contribution it made, is it makes us think about what is the role of non-Indigenous people in the truth-telling process?
2: Well, uh, I say in the afterword to the book, this is a white man's view. You know, this is a white fellow's view. When I set out, I had some vague notion that I would incorporate in the book Indigenous views and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I came, I came to the conclusion that that was not my role, that I was telling my family's story. I was telling a white story. But, of course, it's a white story about about what happens to indigenous people but i think we're actually really at quite an early stage with the truth telling and it does take time and it and it does take well it does take an enormous amount of work this was this was a huge enterprise 5 years in all but it will happen And we've got to understand that time is an important player in this story and time will show us more. And God knows, I still have this kind of vague belief that somewhere in some shed in Queensland, somebody is going to stumble across the entire records of the Queensland Native Police from 1859 to 1910. Um, We hope, we hope, we dig, we explore...
0: And hopefully they'll come across all those records of the welfare board up there that also disappeared. They had a great history of...
2: Oh, they went as well, did they?
0: Yes. Oh, So it's, it's wreaked a lot of havoc um, with people trying to find where they were removed from because the records weren't kept and were destroyed. So um, there's been a great tradition of destroying the archives that um, might have helped tell more of the First Nations story.
2: One of the extraordinary things about this is that when in queensland it became intolerable to queenslanders to continue the existence of the native police and that this was not the way a civilized state um then of the federation should behave what to do well we'll stop killing them and we'll now start segregating them and that was the and that was the solution put forward and imposed by profoundly thoughtful critics of the native police. The native police has to stop. And it stopped and another system was put in place to do much the same. What began with killing then became control.
0: David Ma, thank you so much for spending time with us on Speaking Out and thank you so much for this important, extraordinary book, Killing for Country. I hope everyone reads it because it will deepen their understanding
2: of the land they live on. Thank you. It's been a privilege to be here. Thank you.
0: This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. A great supporter of Speaking Out, Riverbank Frank, was at the Dubbo launch of the book. He texted me over the summer about Killing for Country and about the stage show Big Name No Blankets. A highlight of the Sydney festival, the production by the Ilbidjeri Theatre Company, tells the story of the iconic Wurrumpi Band. It's a joyous production and brought back many memories. So this one's for Riverbank Frank, the Wurrumpi Band with Secret War.
1: It's a story of colonization, it's a story that's been told before It's the blood of indigenous races on the hands of invading
2: force There's a government and an army not far from these north shores And the tribesmen in the jungle, they fight a secret war
0: were rumpy banned with secret war. This past week saw the passing of Dr. Lowitcher O'Donoghue, a pioneering leader in Aboriginal advancement and the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rights. She was 91. As a child, Lowitcher was removed from her family and raised in an institution in South Australia. She would become a trailblazer for First Nations women training as a nurse at the Royal Adelaide Hospital, being named a Companion of the Order of Australia and going on to address the UN General Assembly. She was also the inaugural chairperson of ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, from 1990 to 1996. She would be named Australian of the Year in 1984 and would go on to work alongside Prime Minister Paul Keating as a lead negotiator on the Native Title Act after the 1992 Mabo decision. In two thousand and three, she sat down with Rhoda Roberts on our sister programme away Well
1: look, I am in retirement uh but what I'm saying is that I'd prefer to wear out rather than rust out, and there's so <laughs> much to be done uh and um until in fact, we get some y- young people coming up who are prepared. Uh, to actually take on the speaking engagements, which I'm doing for the most part now. Uh, And when I suggest to the organisations that want me to travel to their part of the country to speak and so on, I try and recommend somebody I know who is either a teacher or a doctor or a nurse or um, an academic and so on to actually... Pick up the causes that I've been uh, espousing for so long, and yet the problem is, I think they don't have a profile until they get a profile. So they really have to come out in the first instance where the rubber hits the road, uh, do some things at community level, and I just really like to think that they were the people who are going to be doing it in the future, and very soon too, because I'm you know I'm tired in terms of the um the travelling and so on. But um, I still uh, am able, uh, with a good night's sleep, to spring back the next day, and I think I'm actually doing it as well as I have done it in the past. Uh, but I would like to see others step up and take over some of the um, uh, the things that I'm doing. I never aspired to leadership, uh, leadership came finally as a um, as a result of having been involved at the grassroots level, coming through the, the regional level to the state level to the national level, and so on and I think that that really is the only way to do it, speaking of that grassroots level, um, this week in particular, of course the issues that have occurred when we 've seen it the writing on the wall for several years, I guess, about ATSIC and, and what's happening there. And, of course, you virtually were one of the founders of ATSIC in a way. You engineered a lot of that consultancy in the very early days. How does that make you feel when you, you know, reflect over the last decade? Well, look, it's really sad. It really is sad. But many of the problems were there when I was there. Uh, and I felt all the time like I was, like as if I was you know, having to counsel people all the time and keep people on the straight and narrow and so on, and I'd rather not have done that. And so the problems have been there right from the beginning. Um, They've continued to be there. Uh, But um, I think at um, at the level of Chairman, of course, You really do have to cut yourself off. I mean, you really have no friends. You're just on your own. You have to cut yourself off. I noticed a a few weeks ago Noel Pearson was actually talking about that very issue and saying as Aboriginal people, you know, the Liberal government is in power. They're not going to go away. And so perhaps we need to look a little bit further down the road and start actually working with the Howard government in a much more proactive rather than a reactive way. Well, that's true, but of course you 're speaking to somebody who's been who is and continues to be a very strong critic uh, of the Howard government uh, and their policies, and i 'll still continue to do that. but one example of the fact that I have been able to work with both sides uh, of politics in the past um, is the matter of the domestic violence um and, uh, child sexual abuse roundtable. And I'm involved now with the, um, as one of the four Aboriginal leaders who's working with the bureaucrats to prepare the document for the Prime Minister to take to COAG. Now, I did say at the time, why me? Because I had been sidelined, have been sidelined ever since I left ATSIC from government committees. Um, and, um, But I did say to the the Prime Minister that this issue is bigger than him and bigger than me and that I am prepared to work with him on it. But I'm not prepared in a way to let him have his own way completely in relation to the fact that we don't, in fact, um, advise government that many of our problems in our communities are a result of
0: history. That's the late Dr Lowitjoe O'Donoghue, who passed away this week, aged 91. Minister for Indigenous Australians Linda Burney described her as a truly extraordinary leader who dedicated her life to improving the lives of Indigenous Australians. In 2010, the Lowitcher Institute, which is dedicated to improving Indigenous health outcomes, was named in her honour. She will be deeply missed, but her legacy will live on. (laughs) That's the show for now. Join us again next time for more inspirational stories from across Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Sarah Allerley and Jay McAllister. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.